Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The South Asian monsoon is more than just a weather system. Its rhythms control the region's agriculture, its annual supply of fresh water, and ultimately, the fortunes of well over a billion people. As climate change disrupts those rhythms, South Asians must change with them. And there's been another change of style for Taylor Swift. The singer has long had a treacherous relationship with streaming services. The last time she released an album, it didn't go live on Spotify for three weeks. Now, everything has changed, and the love story is back on. First up, though. In a debate earlier this month, Democratic contender Elizabeth Warren proposed a new direction for American nuclear policy, committing to what's called no first use. In January, she'd introduced a Senate bill to mandate it. Those who support a policy of no first use, or NFU, say its absence means there's more risk of accidental nuclear war. We increase the odds that there will be a miscalculation and that someone will believe that we have used nuclear weapons or sent them in their direction when that is not the case. This is about trying to keep America safer, not about playing politics. NFU pledges are common. China and the former Soviet Union committed themselves to versions of it. India has too, although its defense minister recently hinted that it may be revoked. In America, NFU goes against several decades of nuclear thinking. But antagonistic talk and policies from President Donald Trump have left many worried about disaster. At the recent G7 summit in Biarritz, Mr. Trump said he would be open to meeting with Iran's President Hassan Rouhani. Yet his withdrawal from the nuclear treaty with Iran in the first place corresponds to more hardline tendencies. The administration has pulled out of a treaty with Russia on medium-range nuclear missiles and has commissioned new warheads. President Obama promised to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in American policy. He said, I won't get rid of them, I won't abolish nuclear weapons, but I will make sure they're not central to American national security policy. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. President Trump has done the opposite. In his first nuclear posture review, the first review of American policy said he would probably expand the role uh, in which America might use nuclear weapons first to include cyber attacks on American systems. He has ordered the creation of new types of nuclear warheads. That includes very low yield warheads, which are much smaller than ordinary nuclear bombs. And of course, as we remember, he's issued very uh, hair-raising threats, fire and fury against North Korea. And all of that is making a lot of people in America rethink the way they should handle nuclear risks. In what kinds of ways? Lots of ways. So uh, one of them, for example, is a suggestion by Elizabeth Warren. She has proposed 
changing America's 70-year-old policy of preserving the right to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict before an adversary has used nuclear weapons against America. And essentially, it's the idea that says, if you nuke us, we'll nuke you back, but we won't use nuclear weapons at the beginning of a conflict. We won't use them before you've done that. And proponents say, well, obviously that's sensible. America is is strong enough to fight off adversaries using its conventional forces. If they haven't used nukes, why should America? And it's dangerous to threaten that. Recursively, that creates a very high degree of risk and a possibility of misunderstanding or accident. So that's what the proponents say. What do those who are against it say? Well, it may seem like a no-brainer to say, you know, of course we shouldn't use nuclear weapons first. This is absurd. But what the critics say is it's not as simple as that because America doesn't just protect itself with its nukes, it protects its allies. It practices what we call extended deterrence over other countries like South Korea or Taiwan or Estonia in Europe. And for those other countries, if they are attacked by their big rivals, whether that's Russia for Estonia or China for Taiwan, they want to hold out the possibility that that America might bring its nuclear weapons to the fight. They want Russia or China or anyone else to have to contend for the possibility that if their national survival is at stake, American nuclear weapons might come into play even, and this is a crucial bit, even if their adversary hasn't used nukes themselves. And so when President Obama toyed with the policy of of introducing no first use, countries like Japan, Britain, uh, others lobbied against it because they like the way things are. And so which set of arguments do you think is more compelling here? Well, I think Elizabeth Warren's right to point out these risks, and I think first use would only be in really exceptional circumstances. But I tend to agree with the Allies. I tend to think that there is value in America holding out the possibility, however remote, that if Estonia is going to vanish off the face of this earth, American nuclear weapons might come into play. I think that's a valuable thing. We all know American allies right now under the Trump presidency are already pretty petrified for all sorts of reasons, whether it's buying strategic islands or threats to withdraw troops from Europe and so on. And so I think this is not the time to upset that particular apple cart. But where I do agree with Elizabeth Warren and others is that American nuclear policy does carry substantial risks. Nuclear risks are getting worse. We see arms control collapsing. We see nuclear accidents in Russia as it tests new kind of missiles. And so we have to find some way to limit those nuclear risks. You mentioned that there is some rethinking of American nuclear policy on on several fronts. What, What else besides no first use? One proposal that we've seen recently is interesting. It's from uh, Congressman Ted Liu and Senator Ed Markey, and it says, if the president wants to conduct first use of nuclear weapons, okay, he has to make sure that Congress has declared war and given him express permission to do so. That's a very high bar. Congress has not declared war since something like 1942. And having a check on the president's power to conduct nuclear strikes would be a big deal. It would be the biggest change to America's nuclear command and control for 70 years. So I think that's a very sensible way to proceed. I think there are also other things America could consider. It could take its weapons off very high levels of alert, which are prepared to fire on minutes notice. Russia could do the same, of course, I think we should point out. And it could stop trying to develop weapons that are ever more exotic or unnecessary, like low-yield nuclear weapons, something like half a Hiroshima's worth of yield, that may be more usable in a conflict. So I think there are all sorts of steps it could take to try and cut those risks that we've talked about. What about the public appetite for change or indeed for there being this kind of nuclear shadow that the American arsenal presents? It's very hard to work out exactly what the public think on this. If you look at some of the polls, there's a survey in 2010 that says 
over half of the surveyed American public agree with Elizabeth Warren that the US should only use nuclear weapons in response to a nuclear attack by another country. So it seems simple enough. But actually, when you probe into that some of that data, you find there's quite a lot of bloodlust amongst some bits of the American public. There's a fascinating paper published two years ago by a couple of political scientists that showed a clear majority of Americans approved using nuclear weapons first if doing so saves the lives of just 20,000 American soldiers, even if that nuclear strike killed 2 million Iranian civilians. So when the chips are down, when the stakes are really high, what you find is the American public, as in in history, are willing to tolerate uh, quite a lot of organized violence by the American government if if they feel it's necessary and imperative. And so where do you think these discussions are going then in terms of revoking or radical change to various policies? It's very hard to say because politically, of course, you have the Democrats in control of the House, which makes a big difference. The Democratic leader of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, uh, someone who's been engaging on these issues. He co-sponsored Elizabeth Warren's bill. He's been trying to cut funding for some of America's land-based nuclear missiles. He's been trying to cut funding for Trump's low-yield warhead. So there's a lot of political pressure going on. But I think more broadly, there's also a lot of debate about whether a system that was built on the assumption of a rational actor in the White House can survive a more impulsive, more reckless president. And I think that's provoking a lot of thought as to whether the checks and balances are are adequate. So I don't know if we'll see any drastic change in nuclear policy, but I think there is a clear sense that both within America, but I think also diplomatically in terms of arms control with Russia, with China, these risks are mounting and something has to change to stabilize the situation. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Each year, 1.8 billion souls, almost a quarter of the world, await the arrival of the South Asian monsoon. Their lives depend on it. In India and the rest of South Asia, something like four-fifths of the year's rains fall between June and September. The monsoon replenishes water supplies and turns arid brown earth into vivid green grasslands. But a bad monsoon, when the rains are persistent and heavy, can destroy crops and carry away soil, devastating economies that depend on agriculture. It can also claim many lives. And while climate change accelerates such unwanted events, Governments are ducking the need to mitigate the risks. The arrival of the monsoon rains is an extraordinary moment. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. Waiting for the rains is an agonizing thing as the temperature starts to climb. The skies are are blue, but people start to look for signs of these monsoonal clouds coming up from the south. And when the monsoon arrives, the clouds burst. It's called the burst of the monsoon. It's a sensual thing to stand in the pouring rain after weeks of intense heat is liberating. 
there's an excitement, a, a happiness that is passed from person to person. It's the time, traditionally, in poetry, in literature, and in real life, when romances are made. It's a weather event that is closely bound to the lives of so many people. And because of that, the effects of climate change on the monsoon and the way water has been misused in recent decades is especially worrying. What evidence is there that climate change is already affecting the monsoon? Climate change is almost certainly having an effect on the monsoon, but what that effect is is something that scientists don't wholly agree over. It's often thought that rising global temperatures would mean that wet places tend to get wetter, dry places tend to get drier. That's not obvious in terms of the annual rainfall caused by the summer South Asian monsoon. But what does appear to be happening is that the monsoon is arriving later and that the rain that does fall within the season falls in fewer, bigger bursts. Now that, of course, has consequences because it means that the likelihood of flooding is greater, which has, of course, all sorts of negative consequences on the land. It means that soil and early crops are washed away. And it means that floods are much more likely to cause severe damage in highly populated areas. More than a hundred people have been killed and millions displaced after days of torrential rains and flooding in South Asia. India, Nepal and Bangladesh have all been affected. Early in July, for instance, Mumbai saw the biggest floods in a decade, a very large amount of rain falling in a very short amount of time. In northeast India, where the giant rivers of the Ganges and the Brahmaputra flow, well, there, something like three million people were displaced from their homes by these rivers spreading right across their floodplains. That, of course, brings hardship and misery. The rain has been extreme. Over 70 hours of continuous downpour. Everything's submerged and almost all of our crops have been destroyed. Is there some consensus on what the sort of further effects of, of climate change will, will cause, what we see now will lead to? The, the likely effects of climate change are extremely serious for countries in South Asia. That's partly because of their dependence upon agriculture and they need predictable, regular rain. It's also because the North Indian plain with the Himalayas behind is a great trap for particles in the air. And uh, Delhi's smog is notorious, but that smog made from particulates from car emissions, power stations, burning stubble in the fields, that spreads across the whole North Indian plain and is certainly having an effect on the climate. Some scientists think it leads to prolonged periods of dryness. And then finally, of course, rising sea levels will particularly affect this part of Asia because so many cities that sprung up, first of all in the Western colonial times, are built right on the sea. They were built to serve the steam-driven age and now they're particularly vulnerable to rising sea levels caused precisely by the burning of fossil fuels that were the reason for their for their growth in the first place. It, it sounds like those risks are growing ever larger. I mean, what are governments doing to address them? Absolutely. And um, it's very clear that some very obvious steps that might lower the stakes that are being played for are still not being taken. I mean, there were some very, very simple things that national 
uh, and local governments should be doing, but they're not. For instance, providing more storage facilities for water. Over the past decades, thousands of wells, shallow lakes have been either filled in or built upon. And these were once reservoirs for water that trapped the monsoon rains and kept them for the rest of the year. I was in uh, Chennai last month. That's India's sixth largest city down in uh, the south. It was once a, a city famous for its water tanks and its lakes. Many of those have now gone. And now, for the first time, uh, the government declared the city officially to have run out of water. Our day starts at four in the morning when we reach this place to get water. We take two pots of water because we cannot get more water because of the huge crowd thronging the place. It's a very difficult time for us. Another aspect is the hugely wasteful use of water in farming. The Green Revolution was once famous for raising agricultural yields in India in the 60s and 70s. But it came at a price. It involved the application of huge amounts of fertilizer and pesticide, and indeed of water. Water in India is almost free. If you are rich enough to be able to drill a bore well, then the electricity comes to you pretty much for free. You're not charged for the use of water. So that's led to a severe depletion of the aquifers and groundwater sources in India. And of course, rapid urbanization is only exacerbating the problem. There's much more that can be done in terms of ensuring a much more sensible use of water, not least, first of all, by charging for the electricity to pump it out and indeed for charging for water use itself. Otherwise, it gets used wastefully. And yes, despite the news of flooding, India's real long-term problem is not an excess of water, but a shortage of it. Dom, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. When Taylor Swift opened the Video Music Awards on Monday, it looked as if her pop ascendancy was complete. She performed her single, You Need to Calm Down, which later won Video of the Year. The song criticizes homophobia and calls for more civil rights legislation. Mixing pop and politics can be risky for an artist, but Ms. Swift's star keeps rising. Her new release had the biggest week of any album since, well, since the last time she put one out. And much of her success is down to her evolving business strategy. Last Friday, Taylor Swift released Lover, which is her seventh album. Michael Han writes about music for The Economist. Once again, she was expected to be an all-conquering force within American music because over recent years she's become the dominant artist in physical sales and a very important life force. But what was different about this is that she did something new for the first time. She put out Lover direct to streaming services, which didn't happen with Reputation, her last album, or with 1989, the album before that. Why not? Why wasn't she streaming as well then? Taylor Swift has what one might call a checkered history with streaming companies. In 2014, after criticising Spotify's payments to artists, she withdrew her back catalogue, not returning it until three years later. In 2015, she forced Apple to pay artists for music that users played during their three-month trial period. And she's been a very voluble critic of streaming services. She wrote an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal complaining about royalty payments to artists. 
So when Reputation came out in 2017, she waited three weeks before putting it on streaming services. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is that it forced her fans to actually go out and pay for physical copies of her music. And the result of that was that 1989 and Reputation were both by some distance, you know, massive physical sellers more than anything else that came out. Is any of the motivation there that if she can drive up physical sales, that's higher margins, more money for her than she would get from the streaming services? One reason to release physical music is that you can charge more for it. There are much higher royalty rates for physical albums. Streaming works efficiently for artists when they are huge selling artists in the first place because you're going to be in a higher position on streaming services because you're a big artist. Your music is going to be promoted and that will generate more streams. So once you're out there in a very prominent position, actually streaming does make financial sense. So once Taylor Swift agreed to go onto streaming, Spotify certainly pulled out the red carpet for her. So do you think that's why she's come back to the streaming game? There's now ways to make good money off it? I think it's probably cynical to say that she's only come back on to maximise revenue. However, you know, let's not forget that musicians, they're businesses too. You know, they have a right to generate as much money as they possibly can from their product. So yeah, she'll be after the money. Um, then there's also the fact that physical sales are declining. In 2017, according to Nielsen, which tabulates music consumption in the US, streaming accounted for about half of all music consumption, and now it's 80%. But I think probably what's more interesting with Taylor is that she's kind of like the Alexander the Great of pop, and I think she'd reached a point where she looked around from the no more worlds left to conquer, but streaming was the one world that was left for her to conquer. And do you think she will conquer? Is this is this a world hers for the taking? Well, Taylor isn't actually the force in streaming that you might expect from a star of her magnitude. If you compare her to the huge, huge stars of streaming, she appears to be nowhere. The, the, the biggest single off Lover is Me. Now, when Spotify released its top ten of the first half of the year... Me wouldn't have got anywhere near the top 10. And, you know, the number one, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X, had 1.3 billion streams. That said, you know, I wouldn't exactly call the release of Lover a failure on streaming. At one point, uh, she was occupied on Friday when it was released. She held 14 of the top 15 spots on Spotify's US chart. You know, it is working out pretty well for her. So queen of streaming or not, she's going to make a mint. Queen of streaming or not, Taylor Swift is not going to be worrying about whether she can afford her next Mars bar, put it that way. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. 
Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.